Welcome to Horses and Bayonets, the podcast where we discuss geopolitical and security developments. I am joined in today's episode by Annie Bauer. Annie has experience working in a number of different NGOs and international organizations and focuses on developments in East and South Africa. She has spent time throughout the continent, most recently having spent time in Ethiopia prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. In today's episode, we discuss the complex ethnic underpinnings to Ethiopia's recent conflict and draw comparisons with Yugoslavia, as well as examine Abiy Ahmed's reforms. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. So I wanted to take advantage of your expertise on Ethiopia to discuss the recent developments there. I know we're pretty late to the game, but I'm hoping that our delayed response will give us a bit more room for reflection, context, and perhaps the ability to address some gaps in the way the media has responded so far. Some immediate context for our listeners that haven't been following developments in Ethiopia is that fighting has broken out between the northernmost region, uh, Tigray, which is controlled by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF, and the federal government. The TPLF was the dominant force behind the government of Ethiopia for well over 20 years, and the current government, led by Abiy Ahmed since 2018, has moved Ethiopia in a new direction, creating tensions with the TPLF. The current conflict was most immediately sparked by the federal government postponing the election due to COVID. The TPLF had their regional election anyway, which the federal government claimed was illegitimate. In response, the TPLF claimed the federal government was illegitimate, and the federal government cut off funding, which the TPLF declared an act of war and attacked a federal army base. But there is so much more to this conflict, which makes it extremely difficult to diffuse. One aspect of that is the central role that ethnicity plays in the Ethiopian politics. And I'm hoping that we can use this media focus on the conflict to explore in more depth these complex dynamics. But first, could you give some more political context? Yeah, the existence of of opposition to the federal government in Ethiopia goes very far back. And the TPLF is certainly not the only region or group that opposes the federal government. There's uh, plenty of different types of resistance groups and different reasons for resistance for it. But the TPLF especially has a history of, of dominance over Ethiopia's political system. It was the TPLF who overthrew the Derg government in 1991 and that was a, a military dictatorship. And the TPLF overthrew that government with the help of Eritrean forces as well. So the TPLF, once it was in power, which it held political power for 30 years, they established the federal state that we currently have now in Ethiopia, the system of, of federalism with a coalition of ethnic-based parties and the largest ethnic groups in Ethiopia roughly governing their own territorial segments, their own regional states within Ethiopia. Of course, it's never so simple. There are regional states in Ethiopia that contain several ethnic groups, especially in southern Ethiopia. There are There's more fragmentation of ethnic groups and less of a clear delineation of territory per group. So there is, for example, SNNPR, which is a regional state in Ethiopia, the Southern Nations and Nationalities People's Region, that is composed of a whole litany of ethnic groups. So the governance and the stability of SNNPR is very different from the regional state of Oromia, which is largely a Romo 
uh, identity, so to speak. So now with Abiy Ahmed's administration that represents decline in TPLF political control, and it's threatened their longstanding political and economic dominance in Ethiopia because Abiy Ahmed's administration has, has tried to limit TPLF influence to the, T- the Tigray region, which is a change from the past couple of decades. It seems like from a lot of what you're talking about that ethnicity plays quite a large role in the composition of politics in Ethiopia. I saw by some estimates that there are over 70 or 80 different ethnic groups. Could you maybe talk a bit about how the system is structured in Ethiopia, how ethnicity plays into the federalist states, and if that's changed over the past couple of years or, or whether that's been pretty stable? Yeah, as I, I mean, as I mentioned, the, the states themselves are, are largely based on ethnicity and historical roots, spheres of influence, territory, of course, that is all debatable and, and ripe for arguments and disagreements. But they're not all the same size. They don't all have the same influence. The Somali state, the Somali regional state in Ethiopia borders Somalia and is far more arid and far more rural and dispersed and also speaks a very different language from the capital of Addis Ababa. That is also a distinct feature of this ethnic federalism is that not only are the states identified very concretely with the ethnicities within them, there is incredible linguistic fractionalization. There are so many languages spoken in Ethiopia and the official language is, or the the language most commonly used by the government is Amharic. And that is uh, the language and the uh, ethnicity that has a lot of roots of dominance in the imperial history of Ethiopia. All that is to say the federalist states are separated by territory. There's also separation of ethnic identity. There's linguistic separation. There are long histories of different types of grievances about oppression versus domination. There are collective memories of oppression, even ideas of Amharic colonization of different ethnic groups within Ethiopia. So that lends itself to a lot of division. But as you mentioned, in the past 10 years or so, there's been a lot more movement and change and movement of people within Ethiopia with Ethiopia's recent economic expansion, a lot of the opportunities and well-paying jobs are centralized in cities and especially in Addis Ababa, the capital, which has created a lot of internal movement of young people traveling far outside their home state to Addis Ababa or a different region or a different regional capital to find work. And that can present language challenges, cultural challenges. Addis Ababa is a huge melting pot of not only international residents, but also residents from across Ethiopia with very different backgrounds and and different ways of growing up. Also lends itself to grievance because plenty of young people would have rather stayed in their own home had they been able to find work, but are kind of pushed towards cities and the capital especially to find it. And that kind of movement and change is in my opinion, not facilitated by such divisions in the country and and such specific language and ethnic divisions in certain states. So that lends itself to a bit more destabilization. That also corresponds with more of the economic and political changes ushered in by the uh, Abiy Ahmed administration, just shaking things up in general. 
Yeah, I think the interplay and tensions between the ethno-federalist system and Ethiopia's um, economic development is fascinating. And I want to come back to that. But in the end there, you touched on um, Abiy Ahmed's reforms. And I would love if you could elucidate some of the changes that have been made since he came to power um, and won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, as you mentioned, Abiy Ahmed brought in a lot of big changes all at once. Right at the right at the start, ended the very long-standing war with Eritrea and the border conflict, and that was very promising overture. And that then corresponded with a lot of economic and political changes. I think a lot of people who are celebrating his receipt of the Peace Prize are also celebrating the moves towards democratization that his administration made very recently after coming into power, opening up channels for freedom of speech, reducing political political party repression by the, the federal government, trying to also instill with its messaging a sense of more openness and more ability to debate, more ability to speak about things. And that is promising, but also as those democratic reforms come come through, it's destabilizing at the same time. Uh, there's a phrase that democracy can be the most sustainable and peaceful form of government long-term, but it can also be the most destabilizing and conflict-prone in the short-term. The other, the other economic changes especially include privatization of industries that were, that were nationalized for the previous 30 years or so, which has also rapidly changed the economy at the same time as the political environment. So Abiy Ahmed is, has formed this new prosperity party, um, which is a coalition of essentially all of the main parties that were responsible for the government prior to Abiy Ahmed coming in, except the TPLF, who decided not to join in this. Um, is there some kind of element of Abiy Ahmed's reform as being interpreted by the TPLF as centralization that kind of takes away from their regional autonomy? Yes, I think so. And also, it's important to keep in mind uh, the TPLF's history of influence in Ethiopia in general before the the new administration. So not only is it limiting, perhaps uh, threatening their control over their own region, but also limiting their sphere of influence to the Tigrayan state at all, as opposed to having the larger sphere of influence across Ethiopia. Yeah, as you say, it's a smaller ethnic group. And before uh, this most recent escalation of violence, a lot of discussions about ethnicity in Ethiopia were focused on the largest two, which are uh, Amara and Oromo, and the conflicts along the borders of those two regional states. I think perhaps that history of the TPLF having a lot more influence than it currently does now accounts for some of their particular grievances that other parts of the country didn't have. So kind of circling back to some of what you touched on before, when you were talking about how different groups now, especially young people are moving across borders, especially to Addis Ababa, uh, looking for work. You also talked about linguistic differences. There, there are religious differences in Ethiopia as well. So maybe it's it's kind of worth diving into, like, what do we mean by ethnicity? When Ethiopia has an ethno-federalist state, these different states are divided along, like, like how is ethnicity being interpreted in the Ethiopian constitution? Mm. I think, well, the the Ethiopian constitution, which was written by the TPLF, delineates very specifically the different ethnicities, different languages, their different claims to territory. 
as you said, when we speak about ethnicity in Ethiopia, it does involve linguistic differences, religious differences, cultural differences. Ethiopia also has a varied climate uh, and geography. So different parts of the country have different production capacities. And whether they border Kenya versus whether they border Somalia versus whether they border Eritrea, that can also have an impact. But the, the constitution established by the TPLF was based on a sort of leftist idea of ethnic federalism and very focused on decentralizing. There has been a long disagreement between two groups, one of which believes that Ethiopia's path to stability is via a central government that unites the different ethnic groups more or less under an identity of Ethiopianness and exercises more control and dominance over the regional states. Abi Ahmed falls into this category? Certainly in the eyes of the TPLF, because the TPLF is uh, believes that the, the path to success would be through decentralization and allocating more independence to the states and more access to autonomy by ethnic parties or, or the, the states themselves within one unified government. That, that division also is pretty foundational and, and ideological about how should Ethiopia be structured? How should it's kind of differences in the conception of the nation? Uh, there are some good theoretical frameworks for trying to think about um, ethnicity more broadly. And does the Ethiopian definition kind of align with the theoretical framework or is this a kind of unique scenario? The theoretical way to think about ethnicity, especially when it comes to politics, is about a set of cultural practices or behavioral practices, sometimes linguistic practices that unite people and distinguish them from other groups within the same region or within the same country. The line can be blurred very easily between race and ethnicity, but what has been demonstrated, especially in East Africa, is the fluidity and flexibility in ethnicity that the ethnic divisions, so to speak, usually aren't always ancient hatreds or ancient long-standing concrete divisions, but actually they're flexible and they're fluid depending on political uh, contexts, even in unexpected ways. Because ethnicity is a combination of all kinds of qualities and um, even can be subjective to groups themselves. Sometimes it involves appearance, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it involves language difference, sometimes it does not to different extents. So the flexibility, the fluidity of ethnicity is very important to consider, especially when it comes to ethnic politics. So if ethnicity is such a fluid term and can be viewed by people in different ways, the clear delineation of ethnic groups in Ethiopia seems very political. Can you explain how political elites are able to manipulate ethnic definitions for their own gain? We can look at different case studies and see that if you're in a position to obtain power for, for yourself or your political party, and you have these existing ideas about ethnicity, that means existing ideas of difference among people. And when you can mobilize an in-group, out-group feeling among people, that can translate very directly into gathering political power. There's also a long tradition in East Africa of ethnic bias and favoritism economically and politically. Um, and so it can become very easy once those processes start to take effect for someone who's in power to take advantage of those divisions and entrench them even further in order to gain support for themselves. 
So then it, it kind of seems from that that Abiy Ahmed's new reforms to kind of decrease the weight of ethnicity within the federalist structure of, of Ethiopia and to heighten the, the role of the state, more specifically the central state, could be a positive thing insofar as it decreases the ability of political elites within federalist states. I think that's the idea of the of Abiy Ahmed's administration is to have a more centralized state that limits the ability of ethnic parties or regional states to change things or, or, or have a, a huge impact on national politics. However, that might be considering things in a vacuum, because when you have a history of ethnic groups and ethnic parties having a lot of influence, the foundation of federalism in Ethiopia includes a lot of parameters for regional states to have autonomy from the central government. When you have this tradition, then you have, for example, there was a, a lot of opposition from Abiy Ahmed's home state of Oromia. He is ethnically Oromo. Actually, he's both Amhara and Oromo, which, you know, speaks to uh, him as the, as the figurehead of a very central government. But he has a lot of opposition in Oromia against him for not returning favor to the the state of Oromia. There's this expectation of a certain amount of ethnic bias and favoritism that now some Oromos feel they've not received from Abi Ahmed, that he hasn't been enough of a supporter of Oromia or of the Oromo people. So when you have these longstanding expectations, it can actually contribute to more instability. When you expect there to be a lot of autonomy and, and, and some level of ethnic bias and favoritism, then when you don't receive that, it can throw things up in the air even more. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about maybe some parallels that we can draw with other states that have undergone a similar transition from these from, from this kind of ethno-federalist state. And quite often, it, it seems like it's not played out too well. I, I've seen a lot of comparisons with what's going on in Ethiopia with what went on in Yugoslavia in the 1990s? Yes, um, certainly similarities in terms of one larger state containing a lot of deeply entrenched divisions in terms of ethnicity and in terms of language and in terms of uh, religion. And at the same time, how much autonomy versus independence is expected. I think that a parallel between Yugoslavia and Ethiopia is certainly the, the divisions within it um, that are based on longstanding differences that go, that go back before the formation of the modern state. But also I think the concern is that uh, in Ethiopia that these one or more of the, of the regional states might desire independence as opposed to autonomy within a centralized system, which is what happened in, in, in Yugoslavia when Serbia and Croatia moved for independence instead of autonomy within Yugoslavia, that creates easily a domino effect and people's grievances can spread and be mirrored in other groups' grievances uh, and it can result in everybody wanting independence and then no one knowing how to solve that. That's, I think, the concern for Ethiopia is something very similar uh, breaking down as it did in Yugoslavia. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's absolutely fascinating is that Ethiopia is the only country in the world where the constitution explicitly outlines the rights for the states within it to secede and actually provides the framework for them to do so. It's 
very interesting to then see the parallels between that and Yugoslavia, where constitutions also had such an explicit link between ethnicity, territory, and self-determination. So, for example, the 1990 Croatian constitution included the phrase the, quote, inalienable right of the Croat nation to self-determination. Robert Hayden also makes the point that these ethnicities were then linked to citizenship within each state, which enabled or hindered people's abilities to stay in the region, to get a job, get medical insurance, and so on. So we see this parallel of very strong ties between ethnicity and territory. Yeah, and I think the idea there is to make an overture to those groups and recognize them in the most explicit terms, recognize their significance and the power that they hold or perhaps would like to hold within the state. But that overture and and recognition being extended in the beginning can, as you say, serve to very much solidify those differences, codify them in the rule of law. So it can kind of be a double-edged sword, I think. Completely agree. Um, And I think another interesting parallel to make is with Rwanda. So Mahmoud Mamdani, one of the foremost, if not the foremost writer on the Rwandan genocide, makes the point that the Belgian colonizers didn't create the division between the Hutus and the Tutsis, but it did codify them, um, for example, through ID cards, and made a justification for this distinction. They claimed that the Hutus were indigenous and the Tutsis were alien. Um, And Mahmoud Mamdani says that, quote, only with Belgian colonialism did Hutu become indigenous and Tutsi alien, the degradation of the Hutu, a native degradation, and Tutsi privilege, an alien privilege. He actually makes the argument that it was this racial, not ethnic distinction, that's what allowed the genocide to happen, um, and only with this distinction of indigenous and foreign. But it's interesting and very worrying to see the parallels in Ethiopia, where, although it's ethnicity and not race, there is a delineation within territories of who belongs and who doesn't, who is indigenous and who isn't. Yeah, that's, I think, a really interesting point about territorial claims and recognizing and solidifying those territorial claims in something like the Constitution. And we have, to a certain extent, seen in this conflict in Tigray possible examples of discrimination and uh, political repression of Tigrayans in other regional states, especially in the capital, Addis Ababa, and the Abiy Ahmed administration viewing just Tigrayans in the capital as an inherent threat. You've seen that, you know, that kind of thing can happen in a lot of different historical examples. But I think that that is a concern. And the fact that it's not just the TPLF, it's the TPLF as a group and a political party, but also tied to the Tigrayan ethnicity overall. You can have Tigrayans who identify with the ethnicity, but not necessarily the TPLF, but in the national imagination and crucially in the government, those things might be entirely intertwined. Yeah, I I mean, okay, so these are a couple of examples that shed a bit of darkness over the the scenario that's taking place in Ethiopia right now. Are there ways that Ethiopia is different to Yugoslavia, or if there are other parallels that you want to draw that gives you some sort of sense of hope? Ethiopia maybe has this disagreement about federalism versus a a highly centralized state, something like that. But it didn't have a breakaway from a long existing colonial power. 
it has maybe a, a memory of imperialism and, and, and all those all those things are valid, but the fact that it has been internally Ethiopian and not an imposition of an outside form of governance and outside power, and even the fact that it is, there is a very prominent idea in Ethiopian imagination about being the only country in, in Africa that was never colonized, the, the rejection of the Italian invasion. I think that that makes a big difference in terms of, I think the idea of, of Ethiopia being able to, to resolve its own disagreements, to form its own political traditions, to decide on its own form of governance. And the fact that there was no long colonial history, I think, does speak promisingly. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I'd also add to that that there is a sizable group within Ethiopia that is very supportive of the Ethiopian state project, um, in contrast to Yugoslavia, where all six federal states were pulling in opposite directions and were not supportive of the Yugoslavian government. Yes, the fact that there is a camp that's very in favor of a centralized government certainly makes a difference. And also, as you say, the ethnic divisions maybe are, are clear in some places, but are not clear everywhere. As I mentioned before, in, in the south of Ethiopia, the clear divisions and, and, and territorial claims really scatter and fractionalize. They're not the same as they are, say, in the, the northwest of the country. And I think the the geopolitical implications also weigh on people. Uh, the fact that, that it's the, the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia is this paragon of stability and promise and, and economic prosperity compared to its neighboring states. I think that also has an influence on the political aspirations of, of people in Ethiopia, even down to people who, who maybe are far away from the capital or are less involved in the political process, everyone is certainly aware of the instability in Eritrea, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, even northern Kenya, issues of political instability and violent extremism, uh, terrorism, all those sort of concerns. I think Ethiopians across a lot of different, you know, regional states are aware of that threat, which is why even, I mean, the fact that people from Tigray were fleeing into eastern Sudan, that is a change. A, a, lot of, a lot of people have fled to Ethiopia from more unstable regions in the Horn of Africa, other countries that have a lot more conflict and instability. There's a lot of refugees from other countries, internally displaced people who've made their way into the Somali regional state or um, into the, the, the states bordering Sudan. So I think that that kind of motivation, that incentive, so to speak, and that history of being a place of stability in the Horn of Africa also has an impact on people's political aspirations. Yeah, certainly. And I'd like to turn to these geopolitical concerns that you've just expressed. I mean, you have at least two different ways in which this can really explode geopolitically. The first, as you mentioned, being with Eritrea. Ethiopia, historically, has had awful relations with Eritrea, and that was primarily built on the government of the TPLF uh, and Tigray, which borders Eritrea. And then when Abiy Ahmed came in, one of the things that played a part in him getting the Nobel Peace Prize was the normalization and the peace deal with Eritrea. This certainly makes the TPLF a little worried because of their long-standing animosity towards Eritrea, um, and the conflict's expansion to include Eritrea 
both from the TPLF, who have reportedly fired missiles into Eritrea, and from Abiy Ahmed, who the U.S. claims is being supported by Eritrea, certainly holds the potential for the situation to deteriorate rapidly. And then secondly, Sudan and and Egypt have uh, started joint military exercises, and they have a, a, a common enemy in Ethiopia already, given disputes over the dam, which has kind of been political news for the past year or two. Are there other aspects of the geopolitical tensions or regional stability more broadly that are worth mentioning? Well, to a certain extent, Kenya as well. I mean, those concerns about Eritrea and possibly Sudan and Ethiopia and outside influence proxy war concerns on the horizon are most front of mind. But at the same time, I think Kenya, uh, northern Kenya has has issues with instability and violent extremism. Southern Ethiopia has issues of instability and also refugee camps and cross-border issues of displacement and, and, and uh, poverty, which is an inherent sort of force of destabilization in that kind of context. So I think maybe not the, the Kenyan government, but those cross-border issues that exist already can be exacerbated with this kind of thing. And also on top of that, Somalia has had a pretty significant influence on the, the, the part of Ethiopia that borders it, the Somali regional state. There's a lot of, of interplay. There's a lot of people whose families live in Somalia and they live in the, the Somali regional state of Ethiopia. A lot of people who have crossed from one side to another. A lot of linguistic and, and historical ties across that border. In general, I mean, just in, term of, in terms of the, the, the time I spent in Ethiopia more recently, it's the it's the borders of things that <laughs> where where conflict happens. It's the borders with this all almost every surrounding state, maybe not Djibouti, but the borders internationally and the borders within those regional borders where if something's going to happen, it's probably there. And fear is that a weakened or distracted federal government could serve to kind of provide opportunities for groups to try and take advantage. I think so. And even a weakened or distracted central government NGOs need a lot of cooperation from the government to provide assistance to cholera outbreaks that are in refugee camps in southern Ethiopia. Those farther flung issues or issues that aren't front of mind of refugees, IDPs, or people who are in pretty extreme conditions, those can easily just fall to the wayside in the face of a geopolitical conflict. So... But that in itself is dangerous because stability is assisted by helping people out of poverty or, or helping people get placed in a more economically stable condition. If you have a lot of displaced people or, or, or people without knowing where to turn, that can also cause a lot of issues. Well, without asking the world from you, if you had the ear of Abiy Ahmed, what would you be telling him? How has he handled the situation so far with the TPLF? Positively, how has he handled it negatively? And then maybe more broadly, what are if we are in agreement that Ethiopia should move away from this hyper-ethno-federalist system where ethnicities are tied to territorial regions, what are some, if any, ways to kind of smooth that process over? I think that what you can say positively about Abiy Ahmed's administration is the enthusiasm for change and the commitment perhaps to centralization, but a concern that I've had about uh, the the current government that 
has just increased with this recent flare-up is the pace of change and how you institute reforms, especially democratizing reforms or, or economic reforms, has an enormous impact on politics. And especially in this kind of ethno-federalist context, how quickly you institute reforms can have an extremely destabilizing effect. That is not to say that, that it's any easier or simpler to gradually introduce reforms. Plenty of that can be stymied if you don't seem to be making progress by the electorate, so to speak, or by the public. But at least probably my biggest criticism of the government is moving too quickly, even though it also seems so promising and moving swiftly and ending a war with Eritrea or deciding to privatize, deciding to confront issues of corruption and lack of transparency very head on is promising. I think the pace of change has been too fast for the context as it is as it exists now. Because as you say, softening these divisions, maybe improving a sense of national unity certainly would help, but that doesn't mean erasing ethnic divisions along the way. And if you seem to be attempting that, limiting ethnic groups' influence and perhaps absolving that can cause the same problem in reverse. Well, I feel like this could go on forever and ever. I'm enjoying this so much. But in terms of time, I feel like we have to come to an end. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope to have you on again soon. Thank you so much for having me. 